You're listening to the CTK O'Fallon Podcast. And praying if you are able to make that, I'd encourage you to make that when you can. We are going to go to the book of Genesis chapter number three. The book of Genesis chapter number three, I believe this will be our 12th week in our origin series. And while you are turning there, I want to let you know that next Wednesday night will be a special Wednesday night. Everyone will be in here in this room together, and it is going to be another night of pastor quizzing against the quizzers. There is absolutely no hope or chance that I will win, but we're going to do our best effort, amen, not to embarrass ourselves and just to have fun. Um, do have a, a couple teams, so we're going to have a great time, and we, we encourage you to be here if you can. It's going to be a wonderful time, blessed time, and I know all of our youth and, and children that are out, uh, the play practice and classes are going to be in with us too, and so that's going to be a great time. We're going to go to the book of Genesis chapter number three, and we are going to look at just the last final uh Four verses, the last four verses tonight in Genesis chapter number three. I believe that this is week 12. Is that right? This is week 12. So it's only taken us 12 weeks to get through the first three chapters. And uh, hopefully we'll be able to get through the last, the next part of the chapters. I was thinking today, I was praying, I thought, Lord, maybe I could do it in eight weeks. And uh, so we'll see, but but I, but I don't want to cheat it. And I know we've taken a little bit different approach on this. Uh, in the very beginning of the series, we were a little technical, and uh, so that that was okay. We're sort of trying to be less technical, maybe until we get to Genesis chapter six. That may negate us being a little bit more technical. But our study is origins, a study of beginnings. And I want to keep repeating this and make sure that you have this uh, in your mind. If I could drive anything home, I want to drive this point home, is that Genesis chapters 1 through 11 contains the first mentions of most every major topic in Scripture. The first mention, the first reference, the first hint, is, is contained or, or is present and first presented in Genesis chapters 1 through 11. So this part of Scripture is so foundational. I want you to get that point home, maybe even more importantly than how we uh, exegete this passage of Scripture, because it is so, so pivotal. It's so powerful. Upon this... This is the framework and the foundation for all other Scripture. And when you come to the New Testament, obviously the New Testament, the Gospels, the, 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 the Christ himself, the words of Christ, many references he's going to make are going to come back to this, this passages of Scripture and the understanding here. So do not allow anyone to cause you to dismiss Genesis chapters 1 through 11. And it's a dangerous thing 
Do you remember in Acts when they called the apostles in front of them? They brought them and they said, what's going on? And they told them they were upset because they spoke the name of Jesus. You remember that when they called them in? And then what did they tell them? They said, listen, you can go out and you can do your miracles. You can preach. You can do anything. Just don't use the name of Jesus. They didn't mind if they did the miracles. They didn't mind if people followed them. Just don't use the name of Jesus. And they said, we cannot but speak those things which we have seen and heard. And they said, is it better for us to obey God or to obey man? And they said, we're going to keep on preaching his name. Why why were they willing to suffer for that? They, They counted it an honor to be able to be to suffer for his name because they knew there was power in the name of Jesus. Yeah. There was authority. There was, there was so, you, couldn't, you couldn't walk away from that. And today I would declare to you, I would say, and this, is, this isn't my declaration, this is just understood, but much of the beginning of the Bible is not only under attack, but it is being dismissed or excused. And if we could just focus on uh, the love of God without walking through, we don't need all that. Let's just love everybody. and We don't need all that. And when they erase the foundational things, we end up in a chaotic state that we're in today. So as we've come through Genesis chapter three, we've already talked about um, you know, human identity, distinction of sexes. We've, we've talked about roles and things that God have established, submission and authority and obedience and all of these things. We've already talked about all of these are so pivotal. These are so critical and so important. And that is why Genesis chapters 1 through 11 are the most attacked scriptures in the entire Bible. That along with, I would say that along with the resurrection, whether or not Jesus actually physically rose from the grave, whether that actually happened. And so those would be those things under attack. I have in my hand here today uh, something that just came in the mail, I think it was last week, and just recently was printed. And this, this is a commentary on Genesis volumes 1, 2, and 3. And this, uh, uh, I have a lot of commentaries on Genesis But what is special about this, two things. One, a dear friend of mine wrote this, Pastor Steve Waldron in New Albany, Georgia. He wrote this. The the reason why I like it, not only because we think a lot alike, I think, with regards to Genesis, um, but the reason why I like this is because this is written, uh, it's a commentary that is written for um, a lay person. It is written to be to understand Scripture. It's not exhaustive. It is just, in fact, he titles the series Discussions in Scripture Series, a Creationist Commentary. And so he walks through. He doesn't have footnotes and endnotes. He intentionally makes this less academic. He cites his sources in, in the text and leaves it for you to go and to find those sources with Google and everything that's available today, you can do that and you can check that. But he's trying not to get bogged down. He is trying to make an exposition of Genesis very, very accessible and usable for the everyday modern Christian, whether you're a seasoned saint in the church or whether you're a new 
uh, convert just coming to the Lord, you can pick this up and you can read this and this is accessible. So he has gone through, I think his commentary keeps adding uh, verses or uh, chapters rather. I think he has made it all the way through chapter 17 in Genesis through these. So I told him that I might want to buy some of these in bulk. He's given us an incredible, an incredible discount. And right now the set, the commentary set of three would be less than $20, I think. So I'm going to pick these up in bulk and uh, we're going to make these available here. And so this is a little bit uh, similar to what we've walked through in the origin series. Of course, you could probably read this faster than uh, I've actually taught on the origin series. Uh, but where I would recommend you pick these up, every mother and father, uh, especially if you're homeschooling, every student of the word, devotionally reading the word, even if you're not going to read these through, these would be excellent uh, pieces to have on your shelf just as you're reading through to reference, go back, what's that? And uh, I, I like because he'll give you uh, uh, the basic interpretation, but then on sometimes he'll give you uh, uh, different understandings. Uh, so the basic uh, explanation of what the Bible is saying, but then sometimes he'll talk about different viewpoints and he leaves it there for you to decide. He's not trying to project anything on you. He's trying to take the word of God and put it out there so you can read the word of God for yourself and you can know for yourself. So just a real quick, how many, how many, would anybody be interested in this if we pick these up? Okay, I know there would be a few. So we're going to pick these up and we'll have these and we'll just make them for sale out there in the back. I really, really like, I really like these commentaries. I think it's probably the most accessible study in the book of Genesis that I have in all of my library. And so I'd highly recommend those um, you can buy them on Amazon right now, but we'll get them uh, at, a, at, a, at a better cost and uh, be able to make those available to you. So let's go now to Genesis chapter 3. And this is our third week in chapter 3. We're coming down to the very last part of chapter 3. I love, I love how the Word of God tells us about the fall of man, the sin, the disobedience, and then God pronounces a judgment and then right out of that judgment, we talked about in our last uh, 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 edition, I guess you would say, our last uh, lesson on this, we talked about how in the face of all of that and the heaviness of that, the Bible says that Adam called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. And we talked about the hope that was in that statement, the hope that was in that action, how Adam was standing before a sovereign God and he was accepting everything God said and yet he was still pledging himself to the purpose that God had created for him and he literally spoke life over Eve and said, you are the mother of all living. Yes, we've made a mistake. Yes, the world is forever changed. Yes, we have, uh, we, we've done something we can't go back on. But yet, the promise of God is still true. And we talked about the hope of the gospel. We talked about how chapter three ends with hope. And now we're going to look at this specifically, how God comes with hope and I want to title this, this last section, if we can, I would title it, The Lord Provides. And we're going to look at three things that God does in his mercy. 
what God provides, what God provides. So let's go to chapter 3, verse 21, the next verse. In Genesis 3 and 21, it says, And unto Adam also, and to his wife, did the Lord God make coats of skins and clothe them. Now we're jumping right in here in the middle of the text. If you, if you, if you haven't been following along, you can go back on your own. But here he's just given the pronouncement of sin. He's cursed the serpent. He, he, he told Eve that she would have trouble. He told Adam that the ground would be cursed and that he would toil by the sweat of his brow the rest of his life. Adam responds by naming his wife Eve. And then immediately, immediately it says, unto Adam and to his wife, did the Lord God make coats of skins and clothe them? I think the operative word that we need to highlight here or really think of, not, not, not that every word shouldn't be highlighted, but the operative thing we need to see here is the word coat. I want you to underline that word coat or write it down or make a note of it, a mental note in your mind, that word coat. What is going on here? God is creating for them coats, of skins and clothe them. So we see God's provision. We see God providing something for them. We also, I would just put this as, a, as another note, that God does not single out Adam or Eve, but it is both of them. What God does is for both of them equally, Adam and Eve. God does this for both of them. He makes them coats of skins and clothes them. It is impossible for God to make them coats of skins without there being a sacrifice. There had to be a sacrifice. And so in this verse, we see we see the very first shedding of blood, if you will. It is implied in what we understand. God made for them coats of skins. God provides here three things in the end of this chapter. He provides something that they cannot. He makes them a covering. He provides for them a sufficient covering for their life. He also is illustrating here that there would be a sacrifice. Sin comes and there was the shedding of blood. I thank the Lord, and I'm sure Adam thanked God, that in, in the midst of this, God did not kill them and start over. Could God have killed them and started over. Yes, he could have, but God did not. He, he makes for them unto Adam and his wife. Did the Lord God make coats of skins and clothe them? God, let there be shedding of blood. He manifests. He examples. He foreshadows what is to come. And then he provides a coat. He provides a covering. The first thing that God provides is God in his mercy provides a substitution 
for the judgment of sin. God in His mercy, put up that first slide if you've got that. God in His mercy provides a substitutionary sacrifice. The very first thing He does in this passage is He provides a substitutionary sacrifice. God makes a way when there seems to be no way. Something Adam and Eve couldn't do, and God says, I will work it out. That ought to give you hope today. God works out what we cannot. Thank God. He makes a substitutionary sacrifice. We don't know the details. We don't understand how it was, but there would have been the shedding of blood and a sacrifice, and now they are covered by that. We are covered, amen. But we are clothed, literally, in the righteousness of Jesus Christ, not our righteousness. Amen. Amen. Man, Adam, that's some cool coats you got. Man, Eve, that's an awesome coat you got. No, it's not us. We didn't do this. But the Lord did this. God provided it. God covers us. And so this is a foreshadow. It's a type. It's a foreshadow of how we are covered. Amen. We are clothed in the righteousness of God. We are covered. Amen. I'm thankful for the blood of Jesus Christ. We're covered by the blood. Amen. What can wash away our sins? Nothing but the blood. And so he, he provides a substitutionary sacrifice. He's covered, covered by these coats of skins. Unto Adam and to his wife. They were man and they were wife. They were husband and wife. They were male and female. God did not just do this for Adam and then tell Adam to do this for his wife. God did this for both of them. Amen. It, it reiterates the fact that we stand before God as individuals yeah. and we will give an account for our actions. Yes. Adam pointed his finger at Eve and Eve pointed her finger at the serpent. And God says, you both need help. And so they stood on their own. The second thing that God did is God in His mercy compensates for their human efforts fallen short. God in His mercy compensates for man's inadequate efforts, if you will. God in His mercy compensates for man's inadequate efforts. God said no. What happens? When God created them, we know in the beginning... Here we see in chapters, uh, uh, chapter 2 and in chapter 3, we see the first mention of nakedness in Scripture. And the context of the rest of Scripture is established by this. In Genesis 2 and 25, the Bible says that Adam and Eve, the man, the man and, and, and his wife, were both naked, the man and his wife, and were not ashamed that there was an innocence that was upon them in creation. They were naked and not ashamed. In Genesis chapter number 3, the Bible tells us that when they committed the sin, 
In verse 7, chapter 3 and verse 7, Genesis 3 and 7, and the eyes of them both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves aprons. So now that innocence is lost, that is gone, and the Bible says they sewed fig leaves together. I don't even know. You think about this in the Scripture. How much time did it take to sew fig leaves together? I can't sew. (laughs) I've tried to sew a button on. It does not work. I I can sew it on, patch something, but the button's not going to work when I'm done sewing it. (laughs) I might have a button on there. It's just not going to work. Adam and Eve had to go find the fig leaves. I don't know if they knew how to sew or they invented sewing or whatever in that moment, but think of the time that had to pass. They sew fig leaves together, and the Bible specifically uses the word apron. Chapter 3 and verse 7, I want you to note the word apron. The word apron. Literally, the Hebrew word translated there would mean a girdle or a loincloth. This is not a full covering. It's an apron. And it's fig leaves sewn together at that. So it's not a good apron. How do we know it's not a good apron? Because Adam, the Bible says, what did they do? And they sewed fig leaves together and made aprons. So here they are wearing aprons of fig leaves, and God comes by, and what happens? In verse 10, I heard thy voice in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. So even with the apron on, Adam still felt naked. Inadequate, right? And he hid himself. This is the first mention of this. So then God comes to them, and God, after this pronouncement, not only does he he, he have the first sacrifice, substitutionary sacrifice, shedding of blood, But the Bible does not say he made them aprons and clothed them. Did you catch that? I don't believe it's an accident. I don't believe this is a mistake. Their attempt to cover themselves was distinctly identified in the Scripture as an apron. God said no. Your attempt is inadequate. That apron is not going to protect you. It's not going to cover you. It's not going to help you. It's inadequate. And so God says, I will compensate for your inadequate efforts. And I will provide what you need. And God made them coats. The contrast here in this same chapter is very pronounced. The difference between an apron and the difference between a coat. Now, coat in our modern context, the use that we would use it is not what was implied here. But the Hebrew word there is mentioning something 
that would be best described like a long shirt, a garment, a robe, something, a, a, a tunic, something that would have been a covering. It would have covered the bulk of the body. In, in Hebrew uh, linguistic understanding, they would have known this was not a girdle or a loincloth. This was a covering. And God defines what modesty should be right here in Genesis chapter number 3. And not only does he define what modesty is by telling us what it is not, it is not fig leaves (laughs) sewn together as an apron, right? I mean, I know I'm being a little bit humorous here, The difference between today's world and Genesis 3 and 10, Adam was wearing a little apron and said, I hid myself because I was was naked and I was afraid. Today, they're still wearing fig leaf aprons, but they're not hiding themselves. This is the difference. Nakedness is uh, not a natural desire for humanity. Uh, I was watching something, I I think it was on YouTube, I can't remember, a documentary that went into and some of the last, I, I guess you would say, the last touched people in the world um, that were isolated and had no outside communication. Uh, there were people in World War II that were discovered in the Pacific Islands. There was a group of people, and at that time they thought they, they, they did not, no one in the world knew about them at all, and they didn't know about anybody else in the world. And a plane went down during World War II, and I think it was three people survived, and they climbed out of the wreckage through the mountains and, and came up on these people. And the rescue attempts looked for them, found them, and they found them living among these people. And they thought they were gods. It's quite a unique story. But more recent than that, there was a group of people living in the Amazon. And their lineage went back some 150 years or something like that. I think it was 150, somewhere around there, where they had no... Uh, uh, connection to the outside world. And they were, they were enslaved by some of the people that had come down to South America and escaped and ran away and their own folklore. They didn't have any written language, but their oral traditions passed down through that. They best uh, surmised that they were escaped from some horrific things and went and lived among the Amazon. Nobody knew they existed and they didn't know anybody else existed or they were staying away. And modern people came upon them. Some explorers went in there with some video cameras and stuff like that. And finally, when they made, they made a few contacts, and finally when they got them to sit down and talk, what was the first thing that they asked for and what was one of the worst things that they dealt with? They said, we want clothes. And they said, not having clothes, not having clothes. 
was one of the worst things about our previous lifestyle. There's something natural about wanting to be covered. And God establishes that right here in Genesis chapter number three. So even if we say, no, God, we can do this. God says, no, it is right that male and female be covered. Nakedness always throughout scripture. Nakedness, by the way, and idolatry go hand in hand. And today, in our world today, we don't see idolatry in the West like ancient civilizations in other parts of the world may see. But we do see the revival of, I guess you could say, nudity, if you will. And it is an idolatry, an idolatrous practice, an immoral thing. And so God insists here on a covering. Now, later on in Scripture... God is going to get specific about what covering looks like. And later on in the New Testament, the apostles are going to talk about that, as well as talk about that there are differences in cultures and customs and, and, and making allowance for those traditions or whatever in the church, as long as they are not defying two laws that are established, and primarily those two laws, you've heard me talk about them before, but those two things we could say fundamental in our appearance is number one, distinction of sexes, and number two, the principle of modesty that was given by God. And this is so powerful because our world today would, would say that this is, I don't know, it'd use all kinds of words. And, and I, I don't know that we're probably not very far from certain industries canceling anyone that teaches otherwise. But you pray for me, and you pray for every preacher, and you have a responsibility yourself to the Word of God and what God's Word says. Now, I don't get up here and talk bad about people. I know there's a lot of crazy people about out. I know there's a lot of nuts people out there abominable people from, from the White House to the poorhouse, and they're sinners, and Jesus died for them. So as nuts and crazy as they are, I, I, I don't uh, trample them or, or think that they are beyond saving, but I am not going to be silent and quiet on what the Word of God says. Right. Male and female created he them, it is wrong for a male to dress or act or pretend to be a female. It is wrong for a female to act or dress and pretend to be a male. Such is, as the Bible says, an abomination. It is wrong for us to uncover ourselves. And so nakedness was never permitted by God, and before God pronounces the next thing that's going to happen, he already takes care of something. Now, he's getting ready to banish them from the garden. He's getting ready to send them out. He's getting ready to change their world upside down. But before he does, he provides a covering, and in, teach, in doing that, he also teaches them what is acceptable 
and how they are to go about their life, how they are to be clothed. So if without even getting into it, you say, well, well, pastor, what do I have to wear? Do I have to wear a suit and tie? Do I have to? No, I'll tell you what, what you need to be covered and don't sew fig leaves together and think that that's enough. Check, check. Thank you, Brother Philip. Check, check. All right, all right, all right. So, so, so basic common sense here, common sense. So I'll give you a hint to the rest of it. Later on in the principles of clothing, it gave to, uh, uh, he, he gave to the children of Israel was that the, from, from the, the, the breast to the thigh was to be covered. You were not to expose your thigh. You were not to expose uh, uh, the chest, if you will. Therefore, that necessitated sleeves, not that, that your arm was something that was bad, but as you go about working around, there was to be a covering to make sure that that was covered. And when the priest would go up on the altar, he, he, they were to have breaches. The Geneva Bible says that God made them breaches. And what that was was where they would take the robe and the garment and they would pull it out from the back and they would tuck it into their, their belt or whatever so that as they moved and went about and whatever, that their thighs were covered. And that was the basic principle that was given in Scripture. And you were not to uncover that. You were not to uncover that. Now, we don't have to go deep into that, but let me read here, if I can, from uh, just a phrase. I thought this was great. I'm taking this from uh, the Vessels of Honor series from Raymond Woodward, and he makes this statement. He says, Nakedness was covered from the beginning by God, to defeat the temptation it created. It is associated with sexual impulses and desires. This is true. Everywhere we see nakedness in the Old Testament, it is associated with sexual impulses and desire. So much so that to see or uncover nakedness is a biblical euphemism for sexual intercourse. You can see in Leviticus 20 and 17 and other places as well. Nakedness as a moral shame is found from Genesis 3, verse 7, identified all the way through Revelation chapter 16 and verse 15. From beginning to end, nakedness is seen as shame, a moral shame to uncover in that manner. Since God does not change, he said, the principles of modest apparel has not changed either. And modesty must conform to God's opinion, not your opinion. I think that's so true. Adam and Eve's idea of immodesty, God says, is inadequate. And so God gives the standard. God gives the rule. God gives the guideline. God sets the parameters. And so we thank God. Going back to our point, though, that by His mercy, in His mercy, He compensates for our inadequate efforts. Somebody say, praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Amen. So let's go on now to the third thing. And we're going to go to Genesis chapter 20, uh, 3, verses 22 through 24. Let's read these together if we can. Genesis chapter 3, verse 22. And the Lord God said, Behold, the man is become as one of us, to know good and evil, 
And now, lest he put forth his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever, therefore the Lord God sent him forth from the garden to till the ground from whence he was taken. So he drove out the man and he placed at the east of the garden of Eden cherubims and a flaming sword which turned every way to keep the way of the tree of life. Now we'll get back to the question or the statement, behold, the man has become of one of us. Who is the us there that he's talking about? We'll get back to that in a moment. But the third thing that I want to highlight to you as we come to a close tonight, the third thing is that God in his mercy does not let us live forever in sin. It was God in his mercy that did not let man live forever in his sin. I believe that Brother Holloway stated as much when he was here back in August and he was preaching and talking about the tree of life. Here it was, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and the tree of life. And God specifically says, look, here they are. Now they have broken their innocence. Now the knowledge of evil, the good and evil is upon them. And he says, so that they do not take and eat of the tree of life, I will drive them out. I will send them out to till the ground from which they came. God acknowledges and he admits here that had they been given continued access to the tree of life, Adam and Eve would have gone on. Adam and Eve would have continued even unto this day, but they would still be in sin. And so God says this is not right. (laughs) He must feel the need for salvation. He must feel the need for saving from sin. Sin separates. Sin is a destroyer. Sin is a perverter of everything that I have intended, everything that I have planned. And so God in his mercy does not permit Adam and Eve to continue living in sin. But he ensures that they will pass from this life. Yet there was already the promise of a Messiah that would come. Enmity between your seed and the woman. You shall bruise his heel, but he will bruise your head. There was a promise coming, and so God let them, God let them experience the toil and the suffering and also the penalty of death. They were banished from the garden. They were sent out to live among the thorns and the thistles. They were sent to till the ground. Remember, we we noted earlier that when God was speaking to Eve, he said, I will send the pain. 
The pain comes from God. God said, I am sending you a reminder of the sin so that you will never do this again. And now God is saying that your only hope in eternal life is going to be through obedience and faith in me. I am the way. You want eternal life? It's not through sin. It is through Jesus Christ. It is through God manifest in flesh. It is through Jesus Christ himself. I am thankful that God does not let us live forever in our sin without there being a feeling of the weight of the sin, the pressures that come upon our life. Amen. We are living in this life. Amen. Paul said, if I hope in this life only, I am of all men most miserable. He said, living for God, this is what Paul is saying, living for the Lord is not, does not make life on this earth better per se. It makes it better because I know I have a hope. It makes it better because I know it's going to be worth it all. It makes it better because someday we're going to resurrect with him. It makes it better because we know there's a day of no more tears and no more sorrow and no more pain that's coming. But God does not let us live forever on in our sin. This was the mercy of God. The mercy of God. And so God says, let us. Behold, man has become of one of us. So God sent him forth from the garden. So he drove out the man. And he placed at the east of the garden of Eden cherubims and a flaming sword, which turned every way to keep the tree of life. So God sets a separation. He puts guards there. And now we see enter into the narrative something that we haven't seen before, angelic beings. And in this account, specific angelic beings called cherubims. Cherubims who are are created before man. They exist. Here in this narrative, we know that they are already pre-existing and he placed at the east of the garden cherubims and a flaming sword. This is the only reference here of the flaming sword. Later on, there'll be other things. Some think that this is the typology of the word of God, the flame which proceedeth out of his mouth, a flaming sword which turneth every way to keep the way of the tree of life. This was a visible a visible being that was placed there to keep them out. And here's the unique thing. Every ancient civilization, people, mythology, history, whatever, has a cherubim in their account. Now, according to the scripture, it was placed there to keep the way of life. And the only way that this would ever cease to exist, we will get to in Genesis chapter 6, When we get to the flood, the flood would have been the thing that would have destroyed the Garden of Eden. So that means that there could have been for thousands of years a cherubim that people could have walked by and could have seen. 
You think about the weight of that moment where Adam and Eve have access to all kinds of food that they want, and now God is sending them out. Think about the drastic change. Now, we talk about the flood, Noah's, the, the flood of Noah and how different the world would have been pre-flood and post-flood, the antediluvian period. We, we talk about those drastic differences, but probably just as pronounced and just as drastic would have been the Garden of Eden, where God placed man and being driven out of the Garden of Eden. The drastic point there. And then to put cherubims that are standing there guarding the way of the tree of life. This would have been a rather terrifying sight and a terrifying moment. In Ezekiel chapter number 1 and verse 5, Ezekiel says, he's by the river Chabar, and there he is, and he sees this great thing. In verse 5, also out of the midst, therefore, came the likeness of four living creatures. And this was their appearance. They had the likeness of man. And every one, verse 6, had four faces, and every one had four wings, and their feet were straight feet, and the sole of their feet was like the sole of calf's foot, and they sparkled like the color of burnished brass. And verse 8, and they had the hands of a man under their wings on their four sides, and they four had their faces and their wings. And their wings were joined together, one joined one to another, and they turned not when they went. They went every one straight forward. In Ezekiel chapter number 10, I believe it is, chapter number 10, and verse number 15, well, no, let's go back here, it was, he goes again in verse number 8, Ezekiel chapter 10 and verse number 8. There appeared in the cherubims the form of a man's hand under the wings. When he looked, behold, the four wheels by the cherubim, one wheel by one cherub and another wheel by another, and the appearance of the wheel was the color of a barrel stone. And as for their appearances, they had four. They four had one likeness, as if a wheel had been in the midst of a wheel. When they went, they went upon their four sides. They turned not as they went, but to the place whither the head looketh, they followed it. They turned not as they went, and their whole body and their backs and their hands and their wings and the wheels were full of eyes round about, even the wheels that they four had. And as for the wheels, it was cried unto them in my hearing, O wheel, and every one had four faces. The first face was the face of a cherub, and the second face was the face of a man, and the third, third face, the face of a lion, and the fourth face, the face of an eagle. Look at verse 15, and the cherubims were lifted up. This, he says, is the living creature that I saw by the river of Chebar. This is what, this is what Ezekiel saw in Ezekiel chapter number 1. He said they had the likeness of a man. They had hands like a man. And God says in Genesis chapter 3, and verse 22, he says of Adam and Eve to the cherubim, Behold, man is become as one of us to know good and evil. And so we believe God here in this point is speaking to the cherubims. I don't know when he created the cherubims. I don't know all of the things. The Bible doesn't tell us everything there is to know, but it does tell us everything we need to know. And God set this being 
at the east of the garden. And as terrifying as the cherubim were to Ezekiel, these ones, the Bible says, had a flaming sword which turned every way to keep the way of the tree of life. There was a very pronounced message. And that was that there is a difference between being in obedience to God and being in disobedience to God. There is a distinction. There is a separation. It's something that's foreshadowed like we would see later on in the temple. There is being in the, the fellowship of God's people, and there is being cast out. There is, in the Old Testament, being in the congregation, and there is also being out of the congregation. In the New Testament, it follows along in like manner. There is being in the body of Christ, and there is also being out of the body of Christ. It matters how you live. It matters your position before God. What is important is not the church that your membership role is on. What is important is not who your preacher is. What is important is are you in the church triumphant? Are you in, as the old song said, the Savior's bride? Have you been baptized into the body forevermore to reside? There is being in and there is being out. And I thank God that right now there is an effectual door that is open. And the spirit and the bride say, come. Whosoever will, let him come. Right now, today is the day of salvation. But there is coming a day where the door will be shut. There is coming a day where time will be no more and it will be too late. And what we understand here is it is so important that God, I want to be in your church. I want to be in your bride. I want to be right by you. I want to be ready for you. Come on, can we stand together to the Lord tonight and lift our voice and lift our hearts? Come on, can you make that your prayer?